coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 7th of August, 2022, Growing in Christ, Part 3. We talked about the idea of birthing and now growing. The first part of growing, we, we talked about some of the kind of attitudes that we would have, drew those out of Corinthians. Then we looked at the relationship that we have with the Heavenly Father, and we went with a helicopter view over uh, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Then I was looking into the archives to see if I had preached on this passage, and I hadn't, and I go, Pastor Tim, what's wrong with you? So we're, we are going to turn our attention to one of the principal passages on growth in the Christian life, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to that section of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. If you want to, this is a complete aside. If you want an interesting study, go through the books of the New Testament, look up 316 in the different books and see what you see. Interesting stuff. Of course, we know about John 316, and here's another one. But there's others too. That just sort of bonus today. I want you to think about your first day on the job. Whatever that job is or was, what was it like that first day? You came in full of enthusiasm and a little bit of knowledge. No experience. And you go, it's all new to me. Where am I going? What am I doing? Suppose it was a construction job. We're going to suppose for the moment. And you show up on the job site. There you are in raw form. Well, you're dressed, but that's about it. Okay? And the, uh, whoever in charge of, of the job, the foreman or whatever, comes and pairs you with a seasoned vet, a skilled um, technician, and he's going to then show you the ropes of, of this project. And uh, he turns to you and the foreman walks away and you're now the apprentice of this master skilled person. And he turns to you and he says, see that lumber over there? And you go, yeah, it says, build me a staircase. And he walks away. And you go, what? He says, everything you need is right there. You got all the lumber. Just build me a staircase right here. There's a problem with that, though, isn't there? You don't have any tools. Like I said, you came 
in your clothing, that's about it. You don't have any tools at all. You got the lumber, you got the tools, but what else are you missing? The skill, you don't know how to do this thing. Okay? And a lot of times, we don't give it much thought. A person comes to Christ, and we go, well, what do they need in order for them to successfully grow their Christian life? My premise is that they need skills, and they need the tools, right? Skills, tools, and the skills. So we're going to look at a passage today that I believe addresses that issue and is found here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Back up a little bit. Paul had been talking to his son in the face, so this is not a novice. And he's talking about what he had um, received um, and what he had learned. And in verse 15, he says, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, you have that under your belt. You know that. And then he gives us this passage. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching or reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I am not going to take this day to talk about the thing that is sort of an elephant in the room, which he says, all scripture is God-breathed. And that's a basis for another whole message on how we got the scriptures, how they came to us, who did God use? How did he protect what he did down through the years and that we might have it? There is a whole series of messages that we could preach on that. I'm just going to talk about the passage that now, as he talks about scripture, and he says how it is to be used. Okay, so we're not going to talk about where it came from. Yeah, like I said, that's another whole passage and a whole other message or two or three or four or more. But this God-breathed message, assuming that he's talking to believers, he says, I'm going to tell you why God gave it to us. And he gives us four concepts here. It says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So we're going to look at those four concepts and then see what happens when we apply them. The first one is teaching. Teaching is pretty much what you might imagine. It is the idea of instruction. He says that God's word is there to instruct us, give us some information that we need. All kinds of information that is given to us about the character and the nature of God, the nature of our relationship with him, the promises that he has made, what God is trying to do down through history 
and what he has in store for us in the future. All those kind of things are things that we learn. A person who comes to Christ may not know any of it. May know that they are a sinner and that Jesus Christ gave his life to save them and they put their trust in him and they may not know anything else. They may not know that the Bible has how many books? Sixty-six. Thirty-nine Old Testament, twenty-seven in the New. They may not be able to go through them like Genesis, Exodus. No, we're not going to do that. You go. I just about maxed my limit there at Exodus. But they, over time, they start to pick up some of that information. And then they start to find out not only the 66 books, but what's in them. Sort of the book of the beginnings and Revelation at the end and, and Old Testament history. And then Christ in the first part of the New Testament in the Gospels. And then there's the letters from Paul. And they start to put some of this information together. And it starts to fill in. But more than that, it starts to talk about the relationship we have with God and with other believers in the world and how we're to interact with all of them. Teaching instruction. I invite you to turn back to 1 Timothy for a moment and we'll explore this idea of teaching some more in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul is writing again to his young son in the faith, Timothy. And he says this in the first four verses of chapter 4. Now the Spirit, Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and those who know the truth. For everyone created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. But as you go down here in this passage, he then charges them, and uh, let me see if I can find it here now, because what I wrote was wrong. Well, let me, let me read it off my notes, and you can find the passage later. It's in 1 Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will no longer endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. So he gives, them, he gives them this warning then about what is coming.
coming and what is going to happen. But he talks about his responsibility that Timothy was, like I say, a young son of the faith, and he was a preacher. This passage isn't just for preachers. He's just talking about a little bit about the content of what Timothy is supposed to be doing, where his focus is. And so we want to pick up a few words, and I'm not going to linger over these, but I wanted to give you some tags so that you could see where Paul's focus was. He says, first of all, we point out that he says, preach the word. And that's the idea of announce or proclaim it or make it known. Timothy had a responsibility to make it known. There used to be uh, an idea that would pass around, and whether you agree with it or not, used to put a recorder under your pillow and then play the recorder back, and then you were supposed to soak it up overnight as you were asleep. It would just sort of come into your head, and you would have it figured out. Not really a good way to get in information. He says, Pro proclaim it. Tell somebody. Go ahead and verbalize it. Get it out. Preach the word. Then he says to reprove. And we're not going to uh, linger over this one because that's the second word in our study in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. But it means to bring to light, to expose, to convince and correct. And we'll be looking at that, as I said, a little bit later down below. The third word, he says, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke. And the idea of rebuke is to censure somebody, to speak seriously, seriously and to warn somebody. He says, this is part of your job as a pastor, to warn them. These things stay away from. These things pursue. The positive and the negative. This is the negative part. Warn in order to prevent an action or bring one to an end. One of the two. To either say, stop doing that or don't go there. As part of what we're supposed to do as ministers of God. By the way, we're all ministers of reconciliation. So this is your job as well as mine. The next words, he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. The word exhort is parakaleo, and it, that may ring some bells because the word that's used to, to talk about the comforter is one who is called alongside, and that word is the, the basis behind the word comforter that we see used of the Holy Spirit. Call to one side, to summon, appeal, to urge, to exhort, and to encourage. To encourage. When someone comes alongside another, maybe like in a football game and the guy goes down and now he needs help getting off the field, a couple of his teammates put their arms around him, sort of help him to his feet, get him off the field there. 
They're encouraging me, hey, you'll be back soon. You'll be back in the game. But right now, we're going to help you. And he says, that's part of the responsibility that we use God's word to do, to comfort, encourage, to exhort. Then he says, do this with complete patience and teaching. Patience is that idea of macrothumia. We've talked about that. The endurance, the forbearance, the patience. In other words, when we, when we share God's word, we're to speak it forth, we're to encourage one another, we're to come alongside, help them up, sometimes rebuke them, say stay away from that, or stop doing that, and then we're to keep at it. And that's what this word is about. The idea of patience is don't stop. This is an ongoing job. This is part of what the word does. We were talking about that in Sunday school. We were looking at the passage about being anxious and to give it over to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. And he said, how often does that happen? Well, once at the beginning of our Christian life, and then we never worry about a thing again. Is that true? Somebody ought to be rebuking me about now. Say, no, it happens over and over and over again. Why? Because we worry about something new or something we've revisited or something that we like to dwell on. <laughs> and, and he says, what do you do? You come back at it again, come back at it again. That is the idea here behind patience, that we do it over and over. The next word, he says, he says, with complete patience and teaching. And again, here is our word from 2 Timothy, mentioned in 1 Timothy now. He says the idea of instruction or doctrine. That we would be passing on the cardinal truths of the faith. Got to know something about who Jesus Christ is. You got to know who the Father is. Got to know about the work of the Holy Spirit got to know about the purpose and the resource of God's word. All these things are things that we need to take in. Whether we do it by our independent study of God's word, whether we listen to a message by somebody else, you read some, some books on, on topics, we take all this in. And he says, I'm warning you because some... Don't endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, I want somebody who will make me feel good. I don't want anybody who's going to say no to me or warn me to stay away from that thing. Or, by the way, somebody warns you to stay away from something. What's your tendency? Wet paint, do not touch. Yeah, they're right. So the Lord knows our tendency. He says, when somebody warns you, pay attention. He says, but if you don't, he describes what will happen if a person has been taught, has been rebuked, has been exhorted, Patience has been shown in teaching them. 
It says, if they refuse that, it says in verse 4, well, I don't know what verse it is here, it says they will turn away from listening to the truth. Now, most of you know that I'm deaf in my right ear. I mean, I can hear just a little bit, but if you want to have a good conversation with me, you don't come around to this side. If you want me to ignore you, you come around to this side. <laughs> okay? But what he's saying is, someone is teaching, sharing the truth, giving you some insight, giving you those kind of things, and you go, let me turn my right ear to you. He said, I want to hear that. I want to listen to that. He says, some will turn away from listening to the truth. And he says, and then wander away into myths. He says, things that aren't the truth, they'll go off on their own little path, find their way away from all the stuff that's been instructed and taught and, and exhorted and encouraged and go off doing their own thing. He says, well, what? What is the purpose of all this teaching and exhortation? First Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 8 tells us. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. See, the purpose is to draw us into the presence of our Lord, draw us into the presence of the Father. The purpose of all this teaching isn't so that we can run the category on Jeopardy! Bible category, oh yeah! was found in Hezekiah chapter 3. Well, I know. No. no, the purpose is to promote godliness. That we might be conformed to the image of his son. He says, if anybody teaches a different doctrine, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He says, all that stuff you took in all the stuff that was shared with you. What have you done? Tossed it in the dumpster. He is an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are of depraved mind and, de and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means to gain. He goes, why do you want to have anything to do with God? I can tell you. He says there's some people that want to have something to do with God. Because he knows that that's a whole untapped field of people that can supply them with wealth. And I'm not just talking about the preachers who are prosperity theologians, so-called. I'm talking about others, too, who see this is a good avenue. I've shared before, 
we had a we had a couple came to our church years and years ago, even before we built this building, the old building. And they came and they introduced themselves. They were new to town. So oh, that's good, madam, and all the rest. And they introduced themselves. They were very warm and friendly, went around, met everybody in the congregation. We didn't see them again. But at the time, I was meeting with a couple of the other pastors, and I said, do you know these people? Oh, yeah. Came to our fellowship a couple weeks ago. And another pastor spoke, and he says, well, came to our fellowship just last week. Well, what we found out is that they were new to, to town, and they were starting up a business, and they were trying to meet people so that they could have some more clients come to their place. So it doesn't have to be prosperity theology that they were involved in. They just saw this is a good avenue so I can tap into resources. They say, you pay attention to the message, unimportant. It had nothing to do with why I was there. I was there to see if I can get some contacts, then eventually make some money off of them. He says, it says, some causing friction among people or depraved of mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. They miss the whole thing. And he goes on, but we brought nothing in the world, we'll take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. But they have a different doctrine, and the idea behind different doctrine, they have another heresy. That's the word that's there. Different doctrine. Heretical doctrine. Heretical teaching. He says, instead of having godliness, which is reverent and devout by us. Well, that's the first word that's found in 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's go to the second one, back to 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, it's profitable for teaching. And then you go, oh no, I don't like the second one. Can we move on, Pastor? The second one is reproof. It says, God's word was given to us to reprove us. It's the idea of bringing to light or exposing error. It says, the word of God, when it's rightly applied, sometimes instructs us, shows us where we're to go, but sometimes reproves us and brings to light Things that we like to keep buried and operate in the night with. Peter uses this same word to describe a situation from the Old Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 2, maybe you're familiar with the story. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16... He makes reference to an account out of 
Jewish history. And he says, they have eyes full of adultery, verse 14, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed and accursed children is how he describes them. And then he gives an illustration of what it means to be reproved. He says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray and they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. And I've given you the cross reference there to Numbers chapter 22. You remember the story? A king who had a kingdom between where the Jews were in the wilderness and on their way to the promised land, he says, can we stop these Jews? Can you come and make a, put a curse on them? And he says, well, I can't do that because God says, no, I can't. He says, no, no, you really do need to come and do it. I'll give you some more money if you come and, and lay a curse on him. Well, no, because he was warned by the Lord. Don't do that. These are my people. And so he goes, no, I can't do it. And they came back and he said, we're going to give you heaps and gobs of money if you come and do this. He goes, well, if it's heaps and gobs. So he heads now to go and lay this curse on the Jewish nation. And God stops him by putting an angel that he couldn't see in his way, but allowed the donkey to see. And so the donkey kept shying away, kept shying away. And meanwhile, Balaam was getting more upset. Come on, donkey, let's go to where we're supposed to go. And finally, he allowed the don God allowed the donkey to speak. He go, are you kidding me? No, don't you see? There's an angel in the way. And of course, then Balaam was rebuked and reproof was given to him. And that's the illustration that Peter uses to talk about how the Word of God reproves or rebukes individuals. There's another example of this recorded in Galatians chapter 2. And maybe you remember the story. The story is Peter is having a good time. He is he's enjoying barbecued pork ribs. <laughs> Black-eyed peas and corn. No, I don't know what it is. <laughs> now remember, Peter was the one that was on the rooftop, lured, lured down a blanket with all these unclean animals and said, eat. And he said, no, I've always eaten kosher in my life. And he says, no. I want you to go to the Gentiles. Well, now he's with the Gentiles and he's enjoying all this good stuff. And he says, man, I never knew what I was missing. But now some Judaizers come. And what are the Judaizers going to do? They're going to lay the law on Peter. And, and so Peter knows that they're coming. And he goes, we're eating kosher, guys. No more pork. No, no more. No. 
says that Peter rebuked him. <clears throat> Scripture says withstood him to his face. And it's, as it's described, it says when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he, he stood condemned. He was doing what he knew he shouldn't be doing. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Don't you love that? They had their own party. The scripture goes on to say, the actions of Peter were so bad that Barnabas was being drawn into that same kind of hypocrisy. And the word of God then is useful to rebuke. The third word is correction. Interestingly enough, this word is only found in this verse in the New Testament. It means the idea of correcting with the idea of restoration. And how do we know that? From an extra biblical reference in second in First Maccabees 14, verse 34, Simon, son of, of Matthias, was going around and helping the nation to reestablish some of the towns and cities. And he said, uh, he came to this town. And he says, where the enemy formerly lived, and he settled Jews there and provided in those towns whatever was necessary for their restoration. Isn't this a great word? Because it says the word of God is good for restoring. You ever sinned? Bye. I'll take it for granted that you have, yes, but felt like you could never get back to where you were. This word's for you. The word of God is given to bring about restoration. Put us back in a good place again. As he said, the town where some Gentiles were living, where the Romans were living, they had vacated, and now what's left is sort of a pseudo-town. <laughs> they needed to rebuild it. And he says, we moved some Jews in, and then he gave them the resources to rebuild it. God's word is in the process of correction and restoration. The final word that's found in 2 Timothy, here to describe that, is to say and training for righteousness. This word training is, is the word that uh, talks about discipleship, uh, correction, upbringing, involves the positive and the negative side of, of, of tutoring in the sense of bringing about 
the instruction that takes you forward and the discipline that reminds you that's not the way to go. It is the word that is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, when he's talking about the admonitions to the fathers. He says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's that word. Training in righteousness. By far the greatest passage on this, we don't have time for it, but I'll point you to it. It's Hebrews chapter 13, verses 3 through 11, when it's talking about the Heavenly Father who corrects us. And the word discipline is used over and over and over again. He says, do you like discipline? How many like discipline? No. He says, then why does the Lord do it? Because he loves us. He says, if he, if he didn't love you, he wouldn't discipline you. Why? Because he wouldn't care what you do. But he loves you enough to keep you on track. He says, your, your father disciplined you. Don't hate him, do you? Well, sometimes. No. He says, if you are left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Why? They don't care about you. You're unimportant to me. I don't really have any investment in you. But if you are my son, then I'm going to invest in you. And I'm going to correct you. As he says, they disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Speaking to new parents, there will come a time when Obadiah will give you some grief. And it's going to push your button. And your temptation is to let him know who's the boss. That's not the motivation for, for discipline. It isn't God wanting to inflict his will upon us so that he can say, I'm bigger than you, you got to obey me. He says, discipline is given for the purpose of lovingly directing a child to the right path. Can't discipline without the anger. Walk away. Walk away. You can come back at it. But the Lord loves and disciplines. Well, I want to bring this to a conclusion. So we'll look at seeing why he gave us these words and why we've examined them. He says, that the man of God may be Complete, equipped for every good work. And what does he mean by complete? He means proficient, skilled. He says he's given us the word of God so that we might be skilled and what? And equipped. We have the tools and the training so we can live a godly life. So the question is, how do we deal with 
what life throws at us. How do we deal with poverty? How do we deal with riches? Did you win the lotto this week? No, okay. How do we deal with success? Failure. How do we deal, as we saw in Sunday school, with being at peace and being in turmoil? Having all kinds of questions that might make us anxious. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with loss? How do we deal with pain? God's word tells us. Because he wants us to be what? He wants us to be complete, proficient. And he wants us to be equipped. To have everything that we need to do this life that he's called us to live. Wow. Great passage to meditate on. And the Sunday school class knows all about meditation. You can ask them. Okay? Easily could spend much more time on this. But we have the Lord's Supper. We're going to share it here. We invite all that know Jesus Christ as Savior, whether you're a member of our congregation or not, this is the Lord's Supper. But we would invite you as believers to partake. Men are going to share the elements, walk among the aisles. You'll be able to take uh, an element, hold it, then we'll all partake together. But I'm going to make a transition down here. And then we're going to pray. Men are going to come forward. We'll share the elements. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It speaks to the issues of our heart as we have just seen. Whatever comes our way, you're not surprised. And you have truth for us. And you have assistance for us. You can give us the skills, the expertise, and the tools to be thoroughly furnished. And we give thanks that we can celebrate at this time the gift of life through your Son, Jesus Christ. We come before you acknowledging our great need ongoing and thankful for the salvation that you give so freely by your grace and appropriated by faith. Give thanks in Jesus' name. As the men come, we realize that these elements are just some broken unleavened bread, some grape juice, and that's all they stay. But they speak to something else. The first part is broken bread that speaks to Jesus Christ's body broken for us. And that might, if you lead us in prayer as we share this element. Thank you, Father God, that we can come today to stay to share this communion. Lord, we thank you for everything that you have done, for the sacrifice that you have done for us. Lord, every day, let what you have done live out in us to the world around us. Father, help us to let your will be done, not our will. As we go through our days, 
that you would direct and guide us to share the, the very light that you've instilled in us to share with this, this world. Lord, use us for your glory, and we just give you thanks for this great price and sacrifice that you have done for us. We love you, and in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take the first element, broken, unleavened bread, pointing to the body of Jesus Christ. He came in the flesh, lived among men, but lived a life without sin. But his body was broken on our behalf. Let's eat in remembrance of him. Second element is fruit of the vine. I guess Tom, if you lead us in prayer. Our precious and heavenly Father, we do greatly thank you for all that you do in our lives. We thank you for the shedding of the blood that we can be redeemed into your presence. That you made that ultimate sacrifice so that we can have that relationship with you. That we can grow in you your mercies and grace. And we just give you the glory and the praise in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. 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 We take this second element, the fruit of the vine, cup. Jesus talked about it in that upper room with his disciples, known as the cup of redemption. We know without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. And Jesus talked about his body being that sacrifice that would deal with our sin one for all. Let's drink in remembrance of him. I'm going to ask the men to come back around with the trays and pick up the cups with. Them. 